Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Excited to be back in the Scriptures with you. Uh, One quick thing to loop you in on before we jump into Mark uh, 13. Tonight is um, our next members meeting. These uh, happen six times a year, so I would encourage all of you to come uh, back out tonight, uh, members at six, and then anybody who would like to know what this is or you're interested, you can come at seven. Um, Three things I'd love to highlight. This is not exhaustive of what will happen tonight, but uh, maybe three of the things I'm personally anticipating and looking forward to the most. Uh, Number one, we'll have 12 new members to recommend to you. So um, how many churches around the world are getting 12 new members in the span of just a few months? It's really exciting. Uh, Number two, uh, Neil will be giving a, a testimony about some of the things the Lord's been doing in his life and just what he's enjoying here, and Gracie is excited about it. And number three, um, on behalf of the elders, I'll be recommending two changes to our governing documents that you'll then have several uh, weeks to think about before we vote on those. So I'd encourage you to come back tonight to hear those and other things as well as just enjoy uh, being together. We always ask members, um, if you can't be here, that at least someone from your household uh, would be. Um, Again, uh, if you've not yet joined, you're welcome to come at 7. If there are any parents who have uh, kids up through fifth grade, you're welcome to have them stay or to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now called Gospel Project. Everybody else, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, I believe we're on page 496 in those Bibles, page 496. If you're new to the Scriptures, um, I would just say to you this morning that as Todd prayed, uh, we believe, Christians believe the Bible to be uh, the very Word of God. And by that we mean that it exists because God spoke it. And when we read it today, even though we don't audibly hear Him, it is still God speaking. It comes with all the love and all the weight of God Himself communicating to us. Last Sunday, we uh, began tackling the most complicated and controversial chapter in all of Mark. And uh, by way of review, I want to spend a couple of minutes just quickly setting this up. Chapter 13 is primarily about a For us, what is a historical event, namely the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. It occurred in 70 AD, and it happened exactly as Jesus prophesied it would. And uh, let's look at verses 1 and 2 to help set up this conversation. And as he, this he is Jesus, as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So as we said last week, this is as though uh, the Titanic is sinking and one of the disciples is saying, Oh, what wonderful deck chairs are here on the Titanic. But, uh, friends, this is a very significant moment in the history of the world. Jesus is just roughly 78, 79, 80 hours away from his death on the cross. And he tells his disciples, something's going to happen that you can't even imagine. And so I want to prepare you for it. Out of those initial statements, last Sunday we then studied verses 3 through 13, which could be summarized in this way. Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. And consequently, Jesus told these apostles, avoid deceivers and endure through persecution. Our objective this morning will be to, with that in mind, then attempt to tackle the rest of the chapter. Now, the great news I have for you is 
that by far the most strange and controversial material in Mark 13 is still remaining for us today. So, who came for some crazy stuff? We're going to get there, all three of you. <laughs> now, I make no claim to have solved every question about these verses. And I would encourage you, therefore, to be praying for me as we study this morning and for um, all of us as we hear, hopefully, what God has for us. To sort of show all my cards right here in the beginning, I would tell you that um, I believe verses 14 all the way through verse 31 deal with issues about the end of the temple. And then the last paragraph, verses 32 through 37, address the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is, much of this text is about things fulfilled in the first century, namely the temple being destroyed and the gospel forming a diverse people of God over all over the Roman Empire. And yet the final paragraph is still addressing things that are ahead, even for us. That is the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. You may disagree with me. There is certainly debate among Christians, and there has been ever since Jesus gave this speech, about which one of these paragraphs we're about to read relate to the destruction of the temple and which ones relate to the second coming of Christ. And uh, certainly you may reach a different conclusion. Uh, to the members, I'd say, um, our church's confession of faith, our, our, what we call our statement of faith, does not call for agreement or exact unity on lots of things related to end times positions. In fact, not even the longer statement, the one the elders hold to, call for all the elders to agree exactly on all things related to end times. This is because your pastors think not all issues related to end times, what's called eschatology, function in such a way that the church has to be united in how we see them. It's not that these passages, such as Mark 13, have a variety of meanings, any of which could be true or all true at the same time. It's that there's, there's one thing that's true, but we struggle to figure out exactly what that is. And so it's possible that you may have a different take on some of these paragraphs than I do, and you may be right. But as I've studied them, I've come to the conclusion 14 through 31, deal with things accomplished in the first century, 32 to 37, reference the return of Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, would you look with me, starting in verse uh, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God has created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being will be saved." I think he's speaking there not of salvation in the sense of heaven or hell, but in physical, in staying alive or in dying. And the cutting short the days refers to the um, historical fact that when Titus besieged the city of Jerusalem, that siege only lasted five months. It was terrible, but very often in the ancient world when an army was seeking to conquer a city, they would surround it, and they would, yes, shoot arrows and rocks over the walls into the city, but essentially they would just prohibit anyone coming in or out. And therefore, as we know, 
what supply chain issues are about. Do you remember back when you couldn't find any toilet paper? Boy, those were terrible days. Now, imagine it's food you can't find. No one's coming in or out with food. That's what would happen as an army would surround a city. You'd seek to starve people out. So eventually they would come out and you would conquer them. That only lasted for five months. It very often would last much, much longer than that. I think that's what he's talking about. And if we continue, where did I stop? It's not rhetorical. Thank you. If the Lord had not, I already did that, not 20, 21. Come on, peoples. Well, you just got to be pharisaical about it. Verse 21. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heavens, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree, Learn its lesson. Now, let's just have a moment of levity, okay? Moment of truth. How many of you, not you eat them for benefit, but you like them? How many of you like figs? This is absolutely stunning to me. Figs look like Really, really old man skin. I hope next time, those of you who raised your hands, bite into one of those guys. That that's what you think of. Now, for all the rest of us, normal people, here's the lesson of the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves... You know that summer is near. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> so, also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he, or if you're using NIV, it says it, is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus' objective in these verses was to prepare his disciples for the impending epic shift that was about to take place at the center of religious life. That's what these words are for. From the temple to the throne in heaven, from God's presence being centered on earth in a building to God living within every Christ follower by His Spirit. From Jerusalem being the hub of God's activity on earth to the people of God doing this, gathering as churches scattered all over the world being the hub of God's work. From the Jews being the special people of God and that being signified by their temple in Jerusalem to God's kingdom being found among His people in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that having nothing to do with land or geography or a temple. These changes would be felt most fully and permanently in the destruction of the temple. And so as Jesus took His disciples out of the city, they went down through the valley, came up the Mount of Olives looked out over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus stopped. And to, his question, to the questions of the apostles, he gave this speech as a benefit to them. He lovingly prepared them for what was to come. 
I know this feels like gibberish to some of us, but it was spoken by Jesus not to leave them throwing up their arms in frustration, but so that they would ponder His words and feel comfort and be prepared. Jesus spoke of things that would have been unimaginable, and so in compassion He readied their hearts. I was thinking this last week about this passage and about us and about some of the big shifts that have occurred in some of our lives. Things like graduating from college and and starting a career. Or things like getting married and having kids. Or taking care of an aging parent and then that parent passing. Or retirement or a significant medical diagnosis. All of those things are things we would say about which life post that event is quite literally never the same. The rest of life is marked by any one of those things happening. And yet, friends, if all of them were to happen to us, then even combined, all of us, it would not feel as significant as what was about to unfold in the roughly 40 years after Jesus gave this speech. To grasp the sort of bizarreness of this text, specifically the language it uses, we must come to terms with the change that would lie ahead for Judaism, as Judaism was uh, fulfilled in Christianity. If it sounds to you climactic and otherworldly, it's because it would shake the very foundations of how God is worshipped as they knew it. The big idea of this portion of Jesus' speech is something like this. Pay attention. Pay attention to what? Well, pay attention to the soon-to-occur indicators of the end of the temple and ultimately of the enthronement of Jesus. Now, it would take us a month of Sundays to cover all the details in this passage because in covering all those details, we'd have to go back and look very carefully at the Old Testament passages from which Jesus is springboarding. And there's simply not the time to do that. And some of you are relieved and some of you are sad. But what I'd like to do today, because we can't do that level of study, is simply zoom in on two sections and show you some more details about them in hopes that that would sort of demonstrate what's happening in the passage as a whole. And yet, I'd encourage you, if you've never studied Mark 13 carefully, to get together with another two or three church members and you yourselves together walk through the portions that we can't spend much time on today. And the best way you could do that is use a a Bible that has cross-references. If you look at your own Bible, you may see that little A, B, C, D, that follows the words, those are uh, very often linked down to the bottom of your Bible or sometimes in the middle, and there'll be verses that reference what that verse is talking about or pointing you towards a similar text. I'd encourage you to look at the Old Testament references and spend more time here. There's a lot to be learned. Now, in the first 13 verses of this chapter, Jesus explicitly told his disciples not to be deceived. He said coming would be wars, earthquakes, famines, and false messiahs. And he said don't even be deceived by persecution itself. That none of those things would be signs of the end of the temple. And yet, then as we turn to verse 14, he says one thing will serve as a sign. There's one thing to pay attention to, and when you see it, 
then you know that the times I am talking about have now come. And flee. Now, what is that sign? Well, Mark chapter 13, verse 14 tells us, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. Oh, thanks, Jesus. That really clears it up. Now, for us, that is absolutely bizarre language. Something in no context would any of us ever say. There are a number of important issues for us to consider here. First, the abomination of desolation is literally translated the abomination which causes desolation. The abomination which causes desolation. And so when we hear that phrase, even more literalistically translated, it doesn't really help us. But when the disciples heard it, they would have known exactly the kind of thing Jesus had in mind because it was a phrase they were familiar with. It was a phrase they knew. They would have immediately thought of the book of Daniel. And I know it's been a while and we've got many new people here since we studied Daniel. But if you're taking notes, you can write down Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11, and Daniel chapter 12. In all three of those chapters, that phrase occurs at least once. Daniel, when he wrote Daniel, prophesied about certain events that were going to come, certain events that would happen in Jerusalem, and certain events that would happen in the temple. For the disciples in Jesus' day, what Daniel looked ahead and prophesied about, they now looked back on. And they knew what it meant because it had occurred in 168 B.C. We could say it was in their history books. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, you would think with the third or the second, they would figure out that's a hard name to learn how to spell. But a man named Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem, conquered it, and then he provoked and caused and did the abomination which caused desolation in the temple. Namely, he had a pig brought into the temple, slaughtered on the altar as a sacrifice to Zeus, and then carried it around, pouring its blood all over the objects in the temple that were holy to the Jews. That was the abomination that then caused desolation. The temple itself was rendered unclean. And then as the person now in charge of the city of Jerusalem, he ended all of the Jewish corporate worship practices. This was to the Jews one of the most horrific things that had ever happened to them. And friends, this is not in the Scriptures. This is in the period of time between Malachi and Matthew. And so there's no debate that this happened. This is in secular history. By reaching back into the Old Testament and pulling that phrase forward, the disciples would have understood what Jesus was saying. He's saying something like that. But even worse, is going to happen again. It's going to happen to Jerusalem. It's going to happen to the temple. It's going to happen to their exercise of religion as they knew it. And when that happened, Jesus is saying, all Christians should flee. Beloved history tells us that 37 years, that's exactly what took place. Rome got sick of the insurrectionist tendencies of the Jews, and so they laid siege to Jerusalem, as I said earlier. 
It fell under the leadership of a Roman general named Titus in 70 AD. And the destruction of the temple was total. Like Antiochus Epiphanes, Titus desecrated the temple. And further, then he had it burned. And then his soldiers tore it down stone by stone by stone. God has then overseen that little piece of land in such a way that the temple has never, ever been rebuilt. Jerusalem was rendered essentially uninhabitable. Imagine, friends, in, in an army attacking the valley, burning down every church building, and rendering this entire city, the entire metro area, some four million people, rendering it all uninhabitable. That's what happened to this beloved city and that beloved temple. If you want to read more about it, a Jewish historian named Josephus wrote about it in one of his books. It's called The Jewish War. He was an eyewitness of these events, and it is awful reading. He wrote in great detail about the horrors of this day. The abomination of desolation was ahead for the disciples, but it's in the past for us. That phrase, church, does not refer to some future antichrist. You should be looking at YouTube to figure out who he is. He refers to a leader in the past who forever ended temple worship. That's one detail that I think is worth zooming in on especially. Let me show you one other. And because of the complexity of these two issues, they're the two I chose for us to look at in detail. Let your eyes glance back over verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, if you will. To many of us, when we first read those verses, and perhaps even you've been taught this, it sure sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus is describing, if you take the words literally, he's describing things that could only be called apocalyptic and world-ending. Consequently, some people take these verses to be describing the return of Christ. Now, that's certainly possible, but I don't think it's most likely what these words refer to. I think they refer to what happened in 70 AD. Cosmic cataclysmic language is the language we use when things happen that are so awful, we simply have no other language for it. And friends, cosmic cataclysmic language like this is used almost word for word in a whole bunch of places in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few. In Isaiah 13, words like these, almost word for word, are used to describe the end of Babylon. In Ezekiel 32, words almost identical to these are used not about the end of the world, but about the end of Egypt's world domination. In Isaiah 34, words like these are used about the fall of Edom. In Joel 2, words like these are used about a horrific event with locusts. None of those texts are about the end of time. But all of those texts are about the end of an era. They all deal with instances of divine judgment in which the result in the end was a national calamity that brought about an end of an era of life as people knew it. Things were never the same after each one of those texts. 
So if I could illustrate this with something in our own day. Almost every day, someone right now is talking about the possibility of nuclear war. Maybe Russia will use a nuke in Ukraine, which then would result in the United States using a nuke in Russia, which then might result in Russia using one here. And before you know it, we're shooting them back and forth at each other. If that were to happen, if those two countries were to shoot enough of them at each other, rendering literally the land uninhabitable, that would be an era-changing event for the world. From that moment on, the world would never be the same again. That's what happened when Babylon fell, when Egypt fell. That's what happened when the temple fell. You see, the only language in existence to describe such radical shifting of the world is cosmic language. Words up in the sky to describe epic differences down here on earth. Language such as the sun will be darkened and the stars will fall from heaven. This is not to be taken literally. It is a descriptive way of saying when the temple in Jerusalem fall, things won't be the same ever again. When Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was leveled, that forever altered how God was worshipped. Now, if this is a different way of interpreting these verses, perhaps, than you've heard before, remember, our task when we come to the Bible is not to hear it first with ears of our own day, but to hear it with the ears the disciples would have heard it. Now, if I'm correct in my interpretation of these verses, then I think the thoughtful hearer has one major and important question, namely this. If that's what these verses are talking about, then why didn't the temple get destroyed right or immediately after Jesus ascended to heaven? I think that's a very fair and insightful question. So I'm very glad you've asked it. It's a reasonable question. Because if, if the end of the temple was ultimately about God bringing about the end of an era, judging hypocritical worship, and centering from then on worship on the person of Jesus Christ. If it was about the Son, Jesus, coming into the throne room of heaven. That's what I mean by enthronement. It's about Jesus taking his place at the right hand of the Father, exercising divine power from then on. If it's about Jesus becoming and being recognized as the King, then why is there this gap from roughly 33 A.D. to 70 A.D.? Do you understand what I'm describing? That's a great, great, important question. Why did the temple not fall immediately? Why wait 37 years? Well, friends, I think it's because of what verse 27 is referring to. It's because the temple needed its rightful replacement. Namely, the gospel having spread all over the known world, Jesus saving people out of their sin, and then gathering them into churches where the new rightful worship of God would occur from then on. The temple needed its replacement. The gospel had to go forth. God waited 37 years so the church would be born and the gospel would spread. Where's the proof of that? Read the book of Acts. Acts tells us 
what those 37 years comprise. Now, I recognize very, very fully, I think, that some of you are enamored with this topic and others are wondering, why the heck did I come today? And so, let's bring this section to a close by asking another question. So what? I mean, if you like history, then this is, this is like one of the best sermons you've ever heard. But if you're left scratching your head saying, okay, even if I take all of that as being exactly right, I'm not an apostle, and this isn't the first century, and we're looking back on this, not ahead. So what difference does it make today? We know nothing different than the gospel, the local church, the indwelling spirit, and a global people of God. No Christian today is concerned that there's not a temple and God's not being worshipped there, the only place where they were to gather and offer sacrifices. None of us are concerned about any of that. So how does this matter for us? Well, I would submit to you that these verses have an enormously important truth for us, just like they did for the disciples. And here it is. Church. Jesus reigns today. Jesus reigns today. God's good governance does not lie off in the future. He's here today. His sovereignty, His love, His righteous rule, His compassion, we're not waiting for them. They're here today, not in a building, not in a nation, but in His kingdom outposts called churches. We are sitting as the people of God in the temple of God today. And so is every other Christian who's gathered with their church We're two weeks and two days away from midterm elections. Who's excited? Friends, mark my words. For the next 16 days, you will hear apocalyptic kind of language. I wish, I've, I, wish I would have counted just in the last week how many times I heard somebody say, a politician, if so-and-so is elected, it will be the end of these United States. As if one senator had the ability to do that. And yet, the, the, the rhetoric is so loud that it's inescapable, and it has the effect of drumming up anxiety, doesn't it? It's okay to say yes to that. It does. Society is a balloon that just needs a little pin prick to pop. And it feels like we're in constant election season now. We don't ever get a break. And so, think about what Jesus's reigning means now. Christian, it means pray. It means vote. It means don't fret. Because even if one of those people were right and the wrong senator gets elected and the U.S. does come to an end, in two weeks and three days. You're going to be okay because Jesus reigns. There ought to be a calmness about us in these seasons because 
Nothing can shake the reigning king. The world is nuts. We are nuts. And so pray, but don't fret. Jesus reigns. And this reigning Jesus will one day return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We sang about that. And it is to that return we look now at the final paragraph. For that's what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Do you see how different that is than what we've just been talking about? Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Then what do we do? Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, Do you see how different that is than the rest of the speech? Jesus was giving a talk specifically to the apostles. And now he says, now hear me, this is for everybody. Stay awake. You have permission to, if the one nearest you is asleep, to with holy righteousness cause them to stay awake. Here's a single sentence summary of all the verses we've looked at today. Pay attention to the soon-to-occur indicators of the end of the temple and the enthronement of Jesus. But, or yet, remain ever alert since Jesus' return will be marked by no such indicators. Jesus said back in verse 14, here's what to watch for. When you see Titus, flee. But there will be no warning about the second coming. Jesus will come suddenly. Jesus could come anytime. And there will be no warning light on the dashboard of the car of life. Therefore, stay awake. Now, why do we think these verses are talking about that? Well, friends, a couple things to note. Notice, first of all, that verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 32. Notice the singulars. It says, that day, that hour. What has preceded that in the rest of the chapter has been talking about these things, plural. The entire passage up to that point has been speaking in reference of a whole series of events. In the final paragraph, it's speaking of one decisive change. Additionally, and maybe more clearly, all the other verses have been talking about things that were known. Jesus saying, when you see this, Jesus had full, complete knowledge, and he's telling them, here's what's going to take place. Here's what you should do. And yet, when we hit this last paragraph, it's speaking mostly about things unknown. The language switches to an unknown time about a day when there are no indicators and no warning. Just, bam! Jesus is back. I'm going to use that more often. It worked. Everyone, would you listen carefully? I know this has been a slog, but give me six minutes. Hear Jesus out. 
four times in five verses. Jesus says, stay awake or keep awake. He's concerned that we are prone to being sleepy Christians. What's a sleepy Christian? A sleepy Christian is one who's been lulled by worldly distractions in such a way that his or her spiritual senses have become dulled. There's no quickening of joy when we sing. There's no conviction when one reads the Word. There's no direction experienced from God throughout the day. A sleepy Christian is one who has very slowly but surely become rather immune to an awareness of the things of God. Friends, I hope you as a follower of Jesus would not want that. That that sounds horrible to you. Jesus says, be aware that can happen instead of letting it. Know that our reigning Lord is doing just that. He is reigning. And so keep awake. The Romans had four watches for soldiers overnight. So they'd take turns sleeping in order that everybody could get some sleep. There's four of them. They're in verse 35. Evening, midnight, early morning when the rooster crows, and morning. Jesus says, he uses that as an illustration to say stay awake all the time. Now, he's not talking about the awake you do with the remote control. Like you're so exhausted and yet you just have to see what's coming up next. Not that. He's not talking about physical awakeness. He's saying, get your sleep. But when you're awake physically, are you awake spiritually? Or are you lulled by the cares and worries and concerns of the world into a sleepiness? Friends, I'm very concerned that many of us think almost never about the fact that Jesus could, in fact, return. And I'm far more concerned that some of us might not care all that much. Those are indicators of you got some sleepy in your eye. Clean it out. Tell him, God, I'm pretty enamored with my life here. I don't ache for the next one there. When we are physically awake, do we labor to be spiritually awake? The scriptures are very clear. King Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he comes not as a baby, but as king of the cosmos. And he will render judgment on all who have rejected him. He will call believers to give an account for their lives. Hopefully we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will give us, brothers and sisters, resurrection bodies. Can I get an amen for that? Bodies in which when you wake up in the morning, nothing will ever hurt again. Bodies in which no one will ever hear a diagnosis that causes anxiety and fear and will lead to death. No one will ever feel worry or shed a tear or be anxious. 
No one will ever have that tightness in their chest that feels like a heart attack, but is just sometimes unnamed anxiety. And most important, in those bodies, we will never, ever use any body part again to sin. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Friends, it could be today. When our King comes, what will He find us doing? Will we be mindlessly scrolling through the most petty videos on TikTok? Will we be fighting with a spouse or girlfriend? Will we be engaging in other unholy behaviors? Or will we be attentive to the things of God, being faithful to the individual responsibilities He's given each of us, and doing everything we can to, in His strength, be living for the return of our King? Will we be loving God and loving people? Or will we be loving ourselves? Beloved, the days are short. I know it doesn't feel like it. But our lives here on earth are very, very short. So stay awake. Will you stand with me and let's pray? Father, we pray for any non-Christian here that you would use this passage in such a way that they feel its warning and that they see that that day would be horrible without Christ. And I pray even now as I'm praying that some would turn to you for the very first time, confessing that they've sought to be in charge and that hasn't worked. I pray they would turn from sin and trust in the one who is full of grace and mercy, Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, who have already passed through that door and we know you, we trust you, Lord, help us even now to be aware of whether we have been living spiritually sleepy or spiritually vibrant And to talk with one another about that. And to pursue an awakeness, an alertness. And that tomorrow morning we would come to your word like the energy drink we need for the day to stay awake. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name.